Welcome to Mental Health Matters Podcast. I'm Hillary Coughlin. And I'm Christina Anavi. We're both mental health clinicians and health coaches coming together to talk all things mental health and wellness. Our mission is to destigmatize the topic of mental health by talking about real life relatable experiences and hardships that people go through every day but may struggle to talk about. This is a place where we dig deep, get real, and empower you to get through life's challenges. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Mental Health Matters podcast. We're at episode seven, and we want to begin today just by putting out there a little bit of a trigger warning with our topic for today. Um, We are talking about grief, and we are going to do some deep diving and talking about some serious subject matters, and this includes suicide. So we want to put that out there. And grief, you know, is a very difficult topic to navigate, and it's a complicated one. And although grief can come up for people in all different ways, manifest in different ways, it is a universal feeling that is felt by everyone. We really can't live this life without feeling some sort of grief at some point. So with that said, we do have a guest today, Emma G. Rose. She is an author and an entrepreneur, and she's based out of Maine. She began writing her first novel as a way to deal with her grief after her cousin died by suicide at only 17. She believes that stories can blaze a trail through the darkness and lead us back to the light. What you do when you get there is up to you. And I just love that little bio. Those are her words. And so we're so happy to have Emma with us today. So So happy to have you. Thank you for being here and sharing your story. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So Emma, if you could begin just by telling us a little bit about your journey and how you found writing and how you found it to help you cope with your grief. I wanted to be a writer from the moment that I learned that books were written by people and not by some sort of magic. (laughs) And so I went to journalism school and I thought I was going to be an intrepid girl reporter like Nellie Bly. I don't know if you know who she is, but she did some really amazing work as a woman at a time when women, first of all, were not journalists and definitely didn't do the things that she did. So she was kind of my idol. I thought I was going to be her when I grew up. And so I went to journalism school and while I was there, we're going to dive right into the hard stuff. Mm. While I was there uh, as an intern, um, I was, I went into my internship one day and the reporter on duty said, Hey, I hope you have boots in your car. And I said, why? And she said, we're going to the riverbank. There's been a drowning. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And that was Christmas Eve. So we spent Christmas Eve waiting for them to pull a body out of the water. And I had this moment where I was there with the other journalists, you know, there was some TV news crews and everybody sort of gathered around and members of the family came out and the news crews sort of mobbed them and were asking these questions. And one of the questions that I remember vividly is like a scene in my brain, I will never forget. How do you feel right now? And I remember just being struck by the callousness of a question like that at a moment like that with a camera in your face. 
And that was the moment that I thought, I don't want to do this for a living. Now, no shade on journalists. There are a lot of wonderful journalists out there who tell beautiful stories and do it respectfully. But that moment for me was a tipping point. I finished my degree. Um, I graduated, finished the internship, did all of those things I was supposed to do, and then sort of went out into the world thinking, I have no idea what to do next. And then I had what in fiction, which I, I write fiction, so in what in fiction we would call the inciting incident. It's the event that sets your life on a new course. And my inciting incident was my cousin Nikki's death by suicide. So when Nikki died, I was planning a, a move to the other side of the world. And literally, I was moving to Japan from Maine. Oh, wow. So <laughs> literally the other side Early. of the <laughs> Yeah. And I found myself on the other side of the planet dealing with the biggest, saddest thing I've ever had to deal with, the only thing I knew how to do was to write. It was the only coping mechanism I really had at that point. And that's what I did. And it turned into a novel. Wow. How long was that process from when you started writing, you know, as a coping skill to this novel? It, from from starting writing to publication was about 10 years. Mm -hmm. And most of that time was the discovery process of, do I actually want to share this story? Is mm -hmm. this a story anyone else wants to hear? How do I shape this into something that can be helpful for other people as well as for myself? So there, there are a lot of doubts in there. There's a lot of fear in there. There's a lot of worry about what people will think and whether anyone wants to read a book that's essentially about death and grief and loss, um, but is fantasy at the same time. Um, so it took 10 years for that whole process to unfold. The actual writing didn't take quite that long, but almost with edits and revisions and all of that. Wow. What led you to toward fantasy and that genre, especially in the telling of this story with your grief? Well, I've always been a reader of fantasy. I love fantasy. I love the idea that there's another world just around the corner, that there's some help out there that you didn't know existed, that the world isn't quite as simple or as scary even as you might first think. And when I started writing myself, it was a, a natural fit for my own, my own healing to write fantasy because that's what we want, right? We want the fantasy world where everything's okay. Of course, I wrote the fantasy world where things were very much not okay. So I don't know what that says, but I, I do believe that fantasy, I left it as a fantasy story and, and I advocate fantasies for fantasy stories because I believe that they create a sort of psychological distance that makes it safe to talk about things that otherwise would be very scary or difficult to talk about. I use, if you look at the example of, you know, some of my favorite authors of all time, like Terry Pratchett wrote fantasy, he wrote satire, 
and some of the things he talked about i mean he talked about slavery he talked about death he talked about i mean he made death a character which i did too in homage um he talked about you know all of these social and and economic and political issues that frankly would bore me to tears and or infuriate me in real life but in fantasy i was able to feel like like i could follow the story and that they were things that i could think about and it wasn't a personal attack you know nobody was challenging me to look at my own life and my own struggles it was like look at this fantasy story but you can't help that's what that's what novels do for you is allow you to be in someone else's head and to be another person for a while so you can't help but learn lessons and you can't help but kind of work through things as you read and as you think about what you've read so I I don't know if I could have written any other way I, I don't think an essay would have done it I think fantasy makes this possible I think it really almost sounds like um like narrative ther therapy Hillary of where um, you know, you're putting your your experiences into a story narrative setting to change that narrative, um, to change your the way that you see situations and change your perspective on things. And um, it's very interesting. Um, and thank you for for sharing that. I I would like to go back and talk more about the writing as a coping skill. And how, you know, in that process of writing, did you find yourself going through those different stages of grief? And did it, was it linear? Because Hillary, I mean, you, you, in your line of work too, you deal with a lot of grief and loss. Do you find that often the stages are linear? Yeah, so I'm a grief and loss counselor uh, right now, and I specifically work at a hospice. So, and I run grief and loss support groups. And those five stages, which traditionally we know as Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's um, stages of grief, um, but that's just one model. I always like to stress that there are many models out there and it's important to find one that works for you or that you identify with because um, there really is no right way, right? There's no right way of um, identifying with, with your own grief. So the stages are just in this order, but they are not linear. Super important is one denial, two anger, three bargaining, which is when you're saying sort of like, I'll do anything to get that person back. You know, if only I could have done this or this, you know, it's sort of like having that internal, um, that inner conflict within yourself of maybe I could have done something differently or if I could give something up to have that person back, sort of an idea. Four is depression. And finally is um, the last stage is acceptance. But again, they are not linear. And this is just one school of thought, but it's the more traditional one that we may have heard of before. Um, so just thinking of your experience, Emma, and your coping skill of writing, um, did you find that this, these stages of grief by Elizabeth Kubler-Rost, did that like resonate with you at all? Or did you feel like that was not your journey? How did you feel during that process? I definitely, if I did experience all of those, which I think I did. I definitely did not experience them linearly. I can probably point to in the week after my cousin's death during the process of you know, planning wakes and all of that stuff that comes around, 
I went through all of those stages in quick succession and in messy order. In my writing, I think that, I mean, you could argue that writing fantasy is kind of a form of denial of look at me, look at me changing the world so this isn't true anymore. Um, I think that that particular model just doesn't, it isn't really the one that I, that I think about. I, I often think of my favorite one, which I, I know there's a technical name for it and I don't know what it is, so forgive me, but there's the model of like the ball in the box. And so basically like your grief is a ball and it's, it's kind of bumping around in your life if your life is the box. And then the box, hopefully, if you, you know, hopefully it gets bigger, right? And so the grief is still there. The grief is the same size, but the box is getting bigger around it. And so it's less likely to sort of like bump into that pain point of, oh my gosh, this is real. And so do I still feel the same depth of grief as I did the day I found out? Yes, but it's not all the time. Mm. And writing this book and all the subsequent books that I've written since then has helped me sort of work through all of these, these different pieces. Work through, I, I went through like a denial, anger, bargaining, the whole thing with, I shouldn't be feeling this grief anymore. Like 10 years later, I did that where I was like, okay, I should be better now. And so I was denying that I felt bad. I was mad that I still felt that way. I was trying to be like, well, maybe if I do this, it'll be better. Or if maybe if I just do that, it'll be better. And then feeling really bad about it. And then talking to my mom and saying, why do I feel this way? And she said, cause it still sucks. Yeah. I think that is such a relatable experience to have and something that we, Hillary and I say to our clients all the time is there's no timeline, there's no time frame for grief. And for some people that, that emotion, that feeling never goes away. Like you said, I love that analogy of the box and the ball because it's so true. Like the grief can still be there but maybe it doesn't have as much of an impact or hit as hard. Um, I love that example. I agree. It's very relatable. And a question I get very frequently is, am I normal? And I always reiterate, yes, you're normal. You know, everyone's going to experience it differently, um, but it's okay to feel the sadness. And in, in fact, it's really important to feel the sadness and to go through the journey of grief um, and to know when you need extra support and extra help, you know. Um, on that note, did you ever seek out support? Did you ever seek out counseling or grief um, and loss support groups? I did not seek out counseling, though in retrospect, I probably should have. Um, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and when I look back and I say, wow, I bet I could have done, I don't want to say better, I, I bet I could have experienced this in a, in a less destructive way had I had I sought out assistance from someone. Um, I did have forms of support in that my uncle, my cousin's father, very quickly turned his grief into action, got involved in um, suicide awareness, suicide prevention. He was instrumental in helping um, the state of Massachusetts introduce some um, legislation around training teachers in suicide awareness and prevention. Amazing. Um, yeah, he, he did. He like immediately just, well, not immediately, but very quickly in my eyes said, all right, what can I do to make sure other parents don't have to go through this? What can I do to protect more kids? 
And so, you know, his example and our family sort of coming together around that was was supportive, even though for a while I was on the other side of the planet. So I think in that I did have support. And it's amazing when you start talking to the, about this stuff, how many people say, oh, me too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what has been the, the impact and the feedback that you've gotten from this novel? I, at every event I do, and almost every time I talk anywhere, on any venue, I have someone come out and say, this resonated with me because I lost someone too. I, I, I haven't thought about grief this way. I didn't know that I could talk about it the way that you know, you're talking about it. I try to make it normal. You know, I try to talk about it in a in an honest way as much as I can while respecting, you know, my own privacy and the privacy of my family. But I don't want anyone to think that this is weird. Like people right. die and it's awful. <laughs> and you will feel sad and you're supposed to. And you will deal with it however you deal with it. And for some people that's going out and making legislation. And for some people it's making art and neither way is wrong. Right. And I, I've, I've had some really, you know, beautiful interactions with people who have said, you know, I've been suicidal. And so hearing you talk made me think like, oh, there's people out there who get it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've, or I've lost someone, the number of people who I've known my whole life who say, oh yeah, you know, my, my cousin so-and-so or my brother so-and-so or my, who I've never heard of because they're not talked about because until you know, 10 or 15 years ago, just saying that word. When my uncle, sorry, when my uncle was first asked to speak uh, at a school, a school that my cousin had gone to, he was seconds from going on stage to talk to these kids. And they said, oh wait, uh, don't say the word suicide. And, And he went, what? Wow. And attitudes have very much changed in you know the last 13 years uh which is how long it's been it you know people are much more likely to talk about it people are less terrified of that word there's been some education i think around the fact that talking about it doesn't make it more likely talking about it probably actually makes it less likely so let's talk about it exactly right (laughs) i was just gonna say that yeah talking about it doesn't mean that it's more likely to happen it actually reduces um reduces it and I mean, in your experience, Hillary, why do you think it is so difficult for people to talk and share about grief and loss? Well, I think that um, people just, what I've heard a lot of is people feel that they're a burden and, and they're not, right? They're not, but it's a feeling that they have that they don't wanna be the sad person. They don't wanna be the one that people are uncomfortable around. Um, and, you know, we, we do a lot of talking around this in groups and in individual sessions that I do that um, I always encourage and, um, you know, validate them in their grief and say, we, maybe you should bring it up first because I think what happens is people are afraid to bring it up to make people sad 
or to like trigger their feelings, so to speak. And they don't want to bring that person down, but the person actually wants to talk about it. The person actually wants to hear that loved one's name that's passed. Like it's something because then they feel forgotten. They feel like it never happened. They feel like that person was never here. It's actually more disrespectful for people, right? To have it just not be talked about. That's, that's really what I've heard quite a bit of. And um, so, um, I do think that there's like a miscommunication on both ends, right? Where it's like, they don't want to be the burden and the other people don't want to bring them down. So it's an interesting dynamic there. But what is your take on that, Emma? I think there's also an element of like, I don't have the energy to manage the other person's emotions. Mm. So sometimes, you know, you'll say something and you'll get a response that's not helpful. And you don't have the energy to educate that person or to like guide them into what you do need because you're so busy with your own feelings. So, you know, we had people like very early on, we had people say things like, well, everything happens for a reason, which yeah. is my least favorite phrase of all time. Or, you know, th there were some people, you know, depending on people's religious backgrounds, they had statements that we didn't feel were helpful for us. And sometimes just opening up that can of worms is like something I can't do today, you know? Like I, yes, I'm sad, but I don't wanna have to explain it again. Yes. But I've also been on the other side of it where there was a period of time where literally every person I met knew about my cousin because it was like the first thing out of my mouth. I, as soon as I could find a way to bring his name into the conversation, I would and I would tell people what happened. And I can't really explain that entirely but it just felt like so urgent to me that everyone know, like everyone ha have his name in their head. Nobody can forget him. Even if you've never met him before, you have to know he existed and you have to know his name and you have to know what happened. And I think it's kind of like two sides of the same coin of yeah, that, makes that sense. back and forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also that's why support groups are so important because it brings people together who have experienced a loss. And I think another piece of it is that people feel not understood or heard or you know validated in their grief because it is a tricky subject to navigate for most people so i think being in a room of people who understand your i mean even though it might be different for everybody in that room the loss might be different their lifestyles but there's still that grief and you know it, it just opens up a whole new avenue for people to feel safe to talk about their grief yeah how has this year especially been for you, Emma, and in this topic? You know, I think so much with COVID and not even loss of people, but also loss of, you know, expectations, loss of jobs, loss of identities, loss of plans, like a lot of loss in the past year, year and a half. How is that? been for you have you found that um people are like coming out of the woodwork and and rediscovering um your book and and this this conversation um what's it been like for you it has been odd um i i since the pandemic started i've launched two books the one that I launched fairly early, so I, I do a book every July, a book comes out. So the one, it was March and then it, everything started, right? And then it was July and 
I had a book. Right. And that book was a very quiet reception. Um, people who read it liked it, but it, it was though people weren't looking for that kind of book right now, which makes sense. It's a book about a paramedic learning, you know, trying to save people's lives while learning to deal with the inevitability of death. And I felt like in some ways it was like too close to home for people right now. Wow, yeah, sure. What, what was that? Of course, I didn't plan it. Book, by the way? Uh, that's Near Life Experience. Okay. Interesting. Wow. And so for, you know, for that book, I just, I felt like there was a really quiet reception. Um, I still feel like it hasn't gotten the love that I would like it to, um, because I just, it is hard to sell people on that topic right now. They're like, yeah, I know, thanks. <laughs> And then the book that I just published this July, Assembling Ella, that one has gotten much more of a response because we have, we did get to do an in-person event. Um, you know, we've, I've been able to do some, some more promotional things, but it was really challenging for me because I didn't, I knew what the story was and I didn't think about my own having to deal with writing the story because it's you know it's very personal writing is kind of almost a subconscious process in a lot of ways it brings things up that you didn't necessarily know you were going to bring up and so I in my infinite wisdom decided that during the pandemic was a great time to write a book about a girl dealing with long-term grief so I wrote about the little sister from my first novel and now it's 11 years later and she's a teenager and she's surrounded by people who don't get why she's like still upset that mm -hmm. her brother died 11 years ago. And as I'm sure you both know, children tend to grieve as they grow. So she you know, dealt with it as she could as a six-year-old. Now she's 17. She's about to, um, well, she is surpassing her brother. He didn't make it to senior year she's starting her senior year. And that's a really scary time when you surpass that person. And so I, had, I was writing this story and I was really upset a lot of the time. And I was like, why am I so upset all the time? It was because I was writing about something that I was dealing with. You know, this was when I had the conversation with my mother about why does this still suck? Why do I still feel bad? And Meanwhile, I'm writing a book about why this still sucks. And it's just so funny the way your brain works, especially as a writer, like this is how I think, how I figure out what I, what I think about stuff is to write it down, basically. So it's been an odd series of events this last 18 months or so. Wow, I, can, I can't even imagine. I mean, it, it is interesting that you were asking yourself those questions as you were processing your grief through storytelling yeah. but I think that that is the experience for a lot of people and we we encourage writing journaling creative expression as a coping skill um, because you're right like things come out that you that aren't like right in front of your face it takes time to process and reflect and discover things about about yourself and the world and um, writing can be a, a wonderful outlet for that. Um, what were, I'm curious to know, like what were some of your big insights and, and like aha moments as you were writing this, especially like with grief and. I think the biggest thing for assembling Ella specifically was 
people don't know how you're feeling unless you tell them. So Ella was very angry all the time, angry, angry, angry. And you know, she had this kind of mental dialogue of no one cares what I think, no one really wants to hear it. But she never said to anyone, I am not okay and here's what's going on. Like that's kind of the arc of the book of her figuring out how to say what she needs. And a lot of the time, I think the problem is you don't know what you need, but just the act of telling someone, even if that is the page, I am not okay, here's what's wrong. I need to find a way to fix this or to make this better or to get through this. That was one of those things that sounds incredibly obvious <laughs> until you sort of realize it for yourself. And then it's like, oh, that's the problem I've been having. Well, you said hindsight 2020, it's so true. Like it sounds obvious when you say it out loud, but in the moment you're not always thinking about that you're not always aware of the fact that oh I haven't actually told anybody that this is what I'm struggling with or maybe that was a conscious choice of not telling people um but you know I I think that is so true like people aren't mind readers they're not going to know exactly what's going on unless you tell them um would love to know what other coping skills that you have found helpful with grief and you know your journey through all of this I mean writing is always my my primary it's my primary skill full stop but it is definitely like the way I got through um, connecting with my family it was has been really important I think it's changed this this event has changed us as a family uh, and I sometimes hear people on the outside, you know, people who kind of come into the family over time or have friends and those sorts of people who see this say, oh, your family's so close. Oh, you really seem to like each other. And that's, I think, a direct result of what happened. So like being open to connecting with other people um, has been a big, both a coping mechanism and a thing to work on, if they can be two at the same time. Uh, and just talking about it, you know, writing these books has given me the opportunity also to talk about it, to be on this podcast and to talk to you, to get in front of a class of high school students and say, my cousin died by suicide when he was your age is both really empowering and a little bit terrifying, but it, it makes me feel like I'm doing something too. You know, like they're in some small way, I'm putting the idea into these kids' heads that like, you are not alone. There is help out there. All you have to do is ask. If you can't ask, write it down. If you can't write it down, I don't know, like do an interpretive dance and tell us that something's not okay. But you know, people don't know unless you tell them. So most of my coping, I think has been a huge process of trial and error with a lot more error than success. <laughs> I think but that's these possible. couple of things work. <laughs> yeah. Right, you gotta find what works for you and sometimes that takes a couple tries. Um, Emma, yeah. I wanted to just say thank you so much for uh, saying the statement of you are not alone because that is one of my huge mantras and what I'm constantly encouraging people, um, you know, of my clients, groups and grief and also just, you know, generalized mental health. You know, you are not alone and it's so important to hear that. And so the work that you do is so important. Thank you.
absolutely. And I just kind of wanted to also touch real quickly on um, for people, you know, this is for people who are grieving, but also for family members, loved ones, colleagues, people who may know people who are grieving. Um, they mm -hmm. may need some tips as to, you know, what, what to say. They may not know what to say, right? So um, mm -hmm. just a couple tips for those who may have someone in their life that's grieving. Um, try not to give advice, right? We don't, is that something that you've received in your life before, Emma? And it's sort of like, you don't really know where I'm coming from right now. I don't know. I know a lot of people have had some people try and tell them what they should do. It doesn't really go well, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really hard because everyone does experience this differently and everyone's at a different place in their path. So like, there's always the well-meaning person who's like, here, read this book. And I am a reader of books. So here, read this book sounds like the right answer, but if it's not the right book at the right time, it, it just feels intrusive. Yeah. So I think for, for me, the biggest things that work are recognizing important dates, even if they don't seem that important. So like for me, the week that my cousin died is the worst week of the year. And if you know me at all, you know that I will be a basket case for that week. And that no matter how hard I try, there seems to be nothing I can do about that. I'm just gonna be like, ah. So to be like loving and supportive of that. For my uncle, it's the, my, my cousin's birthday is the harder date. So to kind of get to know like what, which are the hard dates and to acknowledge them and don't be afraid to say, hey, I'm thinking of you today. Even if that's all you do, that's, that's huge. Because what I hear when you say that is you remembered this thing that is like the center of my world right now and you acknowledged it. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that I think is really valuable is saying, wow, that must suck. You must feel kind of awful about that. Can I, you wanna talk about it or not talk about it? Like, I think just acknowledging that it does suck, that I don't have to immediately feel better, that it's okay for me to be sad, even if it makes you uncomfortable or brings down the mood or whatever. But at the same time, being open to, I just want to play video games and not talk about it. Thank you. Mm. All of those things I think are helpful, really more than anything, the openness to what the whatever the person needs. You can't, there's no like checklist of do these five things and your friend will feel better. Yeah. Right, exactly. There, there's just listen see what they need, give them an opening to say what they need to say. And don't be afraid to say the person's name because a man is not dead while his name is still spoken as Terry Pratchett once wrote. Oh, I love that. I love Me that. too, it's my favorite. <laughs> Thank you for those tips. I think that's really important just to let people know and to give permission to people too, you know, like please talk about them. And also to give permission to people who are, who are grieving that you can speak upon it. You can say, this is what I need. This is how I'm feeling and this is what I need. And I love that that's the message of your last novel. Um, just letting people know that that's, that's okay. You know, kind of empowering them with that. Yeah. Um, so also just talking about where people who are grieving, where they may be able to turn to for help, you know, um, support groups, online support counselors, et cetera. Um, I'm not sure if you have any tips yourself, Emma or Christina. I mean, I'm always an advocate for therapy, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's probably a good place to start. Um, for me, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention was kind of where 
became my go-to for a while. They do a lot of writing. They do events, which the over the uh, overnight out of the darkness walk, where you actually walk through the night and you get to the end as the sun is rising, is probably the most transformative experience because you're walking with literally thousands of people who have also lost someone, and everyone has like Mardi Gras beads of different colors, and the colors indicate how suicide has touched their life. So it's one color for a child, one color for a sibling, one color for a parent. And so you can you can visually see how this person has experienced this loss. And it's it's beautiful and it's very upsetting and and also healing to all at once to be in that space and surrounded by those people. So if you feel like you're alone Go to one of the, they have community walks too that are smaller, but if you feel like you're alone, go to one of these and just look around and see you are not alone. Sadly, this happens and there are people who have, who are in different parts of their path than you are. So there, there are steps to walk through if you need help. Thank you. That sounds so powerful. Um, other organizations that people can turn to are hospice organizations have grief and loss support groups, and those are for the community as well, in case people don't know that. They're not just for people who have had the hospice services. Um, funeral homes, actually, and places of spiritual practice, you know, churches, et cetera, will have uh, notifications of different support groups for grief. There's an organization, uh, griefshare.org, which is a nationwide uh, you know, sort of um, structured program that has grief and loss support groups all over the nation. You can just plug in your zip code there and it'll pop up what's available. And different organizations have grief and loss support groups for all different types of grief, um, suicide, spousal loss, parent loss, loss of a child. Um, they even, now we have COVID, COVID loss support groups. So there really are uh, so many different organizations and support groups for everyone out there if you're looking to connect with others who have lost someone. We'll share details on where to find these um, resources in the show notes as well. Absolutely. With that, Emma, where can people find you and connect with you and learn more about um, your, your novels and your journey? You can find my website, emmagauthor.com. Uh, that's where all my stuff is. But I also spend a lot of time on Instagram, possibly too much time on Instagram. Uh, and I'm there as Life Imperative. So, oh, and I have a podcast. So if you're into books, you can listen to the Indie Book Talk podcast. We do a new episode every Thursday at noon. So, yeah. Wonderful. Any, um, any last questions? Uh closing words, Emma, any, um, anything else that you want to highlight um, for today's episode? Can we just say again that you are not alone, even when yes. you feel like you are, even when you're sitting alone in your room going, how will I ever get through the next minute? You are not alone. We're here. You're listening to us. And there's a whole world of people out there. All you have to do is reach out. And if the first person you talk to can't help, keep reaching until someone reaches back. Thank you so much. For thank you, time. Emma. Yeah, and thank you for your beautiful work. Thank you. Thank you for sharing with us. And thank you everyone who 
listened to this conversation today. Really hope that, um, that you take away um, Emma's powerful story and um, Emma's insight into grief and loss. And again, we'll have her contact information in the show notes and, um, and resources listed there. So, all right, everyone, stay well. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Emma. Bye.